Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. What is Islam to you? Islam to me would be something different, something foreign. You tell them you're Muslim, and the first thing that pops in their head is, oh, she might be a terrorist. They want to build a uh, mosque on dead people's bodies. It's a little bit scary. Where are the moderate voices saying, stop? What do your friends think of America? I'm sorry, but who do you think you are? Women are given the shaft. I would love to see your face, but I can't. It is something that I love, and nobody could pay me to take this off. Is it hard to put Islam into one word? Almost impossible. If I can use two words, I think it's a fanatic religion. It's about peace. Peace! I would say superstition, but I would use that word for any religion. I don't know. I don't know. What is Islam all about? And more importantly, can we coexist? I want to welcome you to our new series. And as you just saw in that teaser from an ABC News report that recently aired, there's a lot of misunderstanding outright fear and I think suspicion on both sides of the equation. Uh, Recently two events have kind of ignited a national debate about Islam, extremism in our response to it. The first is actually right here in New York City, uh, the proposed Islamic Center near Ground Zero, which has sparked a lot of anger and outrage across America. That flashpoint was kind of followed by the extreme response of a Christian Florida pastor who threatened to burn the Quran or the Muslim holy book. Just kind of disheartening. And together, those two provocative events kind of surfaced a lot of pent-up emotion and angst about Islam. But in some good ways, it's also produced kind of a renewed desire for understanding. What exactly does Islam teach? Do you know? How is it different from Christianity? There are a lot of questions about the cross on one hand and the crescent on the other. And in this series, I want to ask the question, can we coexist? And really, in some ways, I want to ask, could we actually get a fair and accurate understanding of what Muslims actually believe in this polarizing climate without whitewashing the fact that we have distinct differences? For instance, we have several things in common. All three monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, each one traces its common ancestry back to one man as the father of the faith. And his name is, anybody know? Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. But though we share a common patriarch, there are tough questions facing our modern world. What does the Quran really say about violence against non-believers? Are Muslim women oppressed? And where are the moderate voices in what is now the world's fastest growing religion? These are the difficult questions that I kind of want to tackle over the next three weeks together. And to do that, we're going to be uh, comparing a couple of texts. What we're going to do is the first thing is we're going to compare the Christian Bible, our holy book, with the Quran, the Muslim holy book. We'll open up both to see what they say firsthand. Secondly, we're going to see what each faith has to say about Jesus who is at the center of our faith, of course, but he's also a key player in Islam, which may be surprising for a lot of you to hear. But most importantly, I want you to hear from the lips of Muslims themselves. This past Wednesday, I had the privilege of interviewing Imam Nizam Ahmad Raouf from the Muslim Center of Middlesex County. 
And Imam Rauf was extremely generous in granting us an interview. In fact, he even allowed us to sit in and observe the midday call to prayer at his mosque. So, salam to you, Imam Rauf, if you're watching. Thank you, sir, for your hospitality and allowing us to learn actually from you. I want to kind of start out with a little history just to set the table for our study with some facts. We've provided some notes for you and program so that you can track along with us. But just by way of perspective, there are currently 1.5 billion Muslims on this earth today. That's approximately 20% of the population. Now, Christianity is still the largest faith, about 33% of the world's population. Here in America, that breaks down to about 165 million Protestants. You're in a Protestant church. 68 million Catholics. Only 5 to 6 million Jews. But the smallest group in our country, only 2 to 3 million Muslims of all different sorts. That may be why there's such a lack of clarity in many ways. How many of you would, actually, would say, I actually, I know I'm a Muslim. I have a neighbor. I have a coworker. Okay, scattering of hands. You have a friend. Keep your hand up if you say, and I've actually spent time to understand what they believe. Keep that up. Okay? Not many hands here. Good for you, for those of you who did. The truth is, the average man or woman on the street, myself included, it's easier to settle for stereotypes as Diane Sawyer noted in her report. Americans disturbed by Islam. I think it's a phonetic religion. The main mission of them is to convert everybody to Islam. But I don't really know that much about it. American Muslims giving an answer. Get to know us. We're just like everybody else. Being a Muslim in America my opinion doesn't make me any different than anyone else. I grew up in the United States. I've never, you know, lived anywhere else. I don't know what other identity I could have. 110% American. But the fact is, nearly three quarters of Americans say they don't really know anyone who's Muslim, nor have they asked what Islam really is. So we decided to begin with what Christians might call a Sunday school lesson. If you are from God, show us a miracle. What are ordinary Muslim children in America taught about the religion founded by Muhammad? He was a good person. He was an orphan and he helped other orphans. And he always prayed. But initially, his tribe was still worshiping stones and idols, while all around him, other tribes were already practicing Christians and Jews. And then in the year 610, Muhammad was meditating in a cave when he says he had a revelation, one God. There is only one God, you would agree, yes? And he is great, yes? And his name is? Well, this is where it gets kind of tricky. As Christians, we would say Jesus Christ is the living God. He is the Son of God. He's our Creator, our Savior, and our Lord. But if you're a Muslim, you would call him simply Allah. Allah Akbar. God is the greatest. That's how you'd say it in Arabic. And Islam has one overpowering central idea. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Muhammad was born in Mecca. That's modern-day Saudi Arabia to you, where he received his first revelation, reportedly from the angel Gabriel. That's the same angel who gave Mary glad tidings in the New Testament. And the angel Gabriel dictated the words of Allah verbatim to Muhammad, between 610 and his death in 632 AD. And the words of Allah are recorded in the Quran, a copy of which I have here. Quran actually just means recitations or readings. Now this copy I have is written in Arabic, but it actually contains an English translation. 
And it's divided into 114 chapters, or surahs is what they'd be called. But unlike the Bible, it's not arranged chronologically by date. It just goes from longest to shortest chapter. And it's kind of fun because Arabic reads right to left. So you almost have to learn to read backwards if you're going to read it, which I've kind of done over the past couple of weeks. You may be surprised, as I was, to learn that the Quran is filled with people and stories that we all know. Adam and Eve. The Quran describes how the world began. In Islam, God created man and woman equally out of dust, not one from the other, as the Christian Bible describes. Noah, Abraham, Moses, prophets we'd recognize from the Old Testament figure prominently. And then there's a young woman named Mary, who has a mystical conception and gives birth to a holy prophet named Isa, who we simply know as Jesus. Now that's something Terry Jones, the redneck pastor who threatened to burn the Quran, didn't mention. The name exalted over and over again in Islam is Jesus. And guys, this is where the cross and the crescent converge in a startling way. I was told that Jesus is the Messiah who will come back at the end of time to establish the kingdom of justice and peace. Not Muhammad? Not Muhammad, the Christ, son of Mary. So we believe Jesus is the Messiah who will come back at the end of time to establish the kingdom of justice and peace on earth. What percentage of Muslims would say that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, you cannot be a Muslim if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's in the Quran. And until Jesus comes, in the Quran, he sits at the right hand of God. So if, if you believe Jesus is a Messiah and sits at the right hand of God, what is the thing you believe that is different from Protestant and Catholic Christians? The, the thing that separates Islam from, and, and Judaism from Christianity is that we don't say that God has a son. Both Jews and Muslims do not attribute a son to God. So in the Quran, Jesus is not the son of God, nor does he die on the cross, but he is a divine prophet. Now, I respect Diane Sawyer, but let's just take a minute to clarify what the Quran actually says about Jesus. There are three truths about Christ that the Quran confirms. If you're taking notes, the first is that he was virgin born. It doesn't actually give that privilege to Muhammad himself. Jesus is the only human being in the Jewish scriptures, in the Christian New Testament, in the Quran, born of a virgin. It's a remarkable attestation. He's referred to as a word of God. Again, Muhammad doesn't have that honor. According to Islamic texts, Jesus was divinely chosen by Allah to preach the message of monotheism to the children of Israel. And, and Muslims believe that God revealed to Jesus a new scripture called the Injil, or Gospel. So Muslims affirm the truth of the Jewish Torah, the Psalms, the Gospel message of Jesus, which is an incredible thing. The Quran also calls Jesus the Spirit of God. They revere and honor Jesus as the purest of prophets, born of God's Spirit. He's not the last of the prophets. Muhammad is the final prophet to bring Allah's revelation. But Jesus is esteemed, yet he lacks something foundational, a divine nature. And this is the key difference. The Quran refutes three things about Jesus that, quite honestly, are impossible to reconcile with biblical Christianity. The first is that Jesus was not crucified. As I spoke with Imam Rauf, it, we sat Indian style on a prayer rug in his mosque, and he was very gracious but clear. Muslims reject the idea that Jesus was crucified on a cross. 
The Quran says it actually only appeared that way. Islamic scholars actually believe Judas was probably the one put on the cross and made to look like Christ, but Jesus himself escaped. There's a reason for that. I'll talk about it. Consequently, Jesus was not raised from the dead. If he didn't die on a cross, there's no need for resurrection. They believe Christ had the power to raise the dead to life. They believed in his miracles, but that he was not resurrected himself. And most significantly, Muslims reject the idea that Jesus was the Son of God. The heart of Islam is the belief in one God. It's all about unity. So the idea is that Allah is not begotten, nor did he beget any offspring. So this idea of like God having a son, the Christian concept of the Trinity, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's anathema to Islam. It seems like it's a form of polytheism. Now, we would say as Christians, not at all. <laughs> one eternal being who exists in three persons, it's like an egg. An egg is made of yolk and white and shell. Now, which part is the egg? Well, they all are. All three parts of the Christian God are essential to understanding his relational heart. But in Islam, those three denials about Jesus Christ, Muslims deny his divinity, his sonship, and the Trinity, those are critical points of disagreement that are impossible to reconcile with biblical Christianity. And if you just pause and think about this, time out. This is a testament to the uniqueness of the Christian faith. The symbol of Islam is a crescent. And that's because Muslims base their calendar on the lunar cycle. So they take a moon and a star as their symbol. But the symbol of our faith is what? A cross. And Muslims simply can't accept the idea of God on a cross. God humiliated. God bleeding and made weak. God come to us? No. To them, Allah is great and powerful and he is so far beyond the moon and the stars. He's, he's, he's powerful. He is punitive but he's never personal. So this idea that, that God came down to our level and took on human flesh and, 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 and he allowed himself to be spit on and beaten and murdered by men, that is a repulsive thought. The cross is a stumbling block to those under the crescent, just as it was in the Apostle Paul's day. He wrote, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the what? The what? The power of God. Muslims see the cross as a sign of weakness. It's an offense. But as Christians, we view this very differently, don't we? To us, that's a beautiful symbol of God's heart for us. That is the power of God, his personal love for every man and woman under the sound of my voice, that he would look at you, he'd see your sin. And when you couldn't ascend to him, he said, I'm coming down to you to take your sin on myself and I'm going to pay for your punishment. And it is foolish. It's like, who on earth would do such a thing? Give their life for a guilty person. The answer, no one in this world. That's why we believe Jesus was the son of God in the flesh, not in spite of the cross, but because of it. 1 Corinthians says, but we preach Christ, what's the word? Crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called Christ, the power of God and the, the wisdom of God. And you understand the wisdom of this if you've ever had a rift in one of your relationships. You ever have a conflict with like your, you know, your spouse or, or significant other? You can argue all you want, and you can use your power to make them submit, and you can win the argument, but they don't feel your love. It's only when someone makes themselves vulnerable, allows themselves to be hurt, to actually bleed. When we feel love when we see someone bleed. Personal sacrifice, that's the language of love. And the cross is simply God saying, I love you so much, I'd rather die than live without you. That's the gospel of grace. I never tire of saying this, guys. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. 
It is our unique distinctive as people who believe in Jesus, not just that he was a good person or a powerful prophet, that is a personal Lord and Savior. Amen? So I want to bring that clarity between the cross and the crescent. We don't worship the same God. So don't be sloppy or trivialize what Jesus did on the cross. The cross is the power, wisdom, and love of God made real. That's the source of our salvation. At the same time, the practice of our faiths actually holds some noble similarities. I mean, if you ask the average person on the street about Christianity, even Judaism, and said, well, what's the list of laws or commandments that you know, people follow in the Bible? They'd say the what? The Ten Commandments. But in Islam, there are five pillars, five practices that define what it means to be a good Muslim. The first is called shahada, which is witness. You become a Muslim by making a confession of faith. There's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's their confession of faith, the shahala. Shahada, sorry. The second is salat, prayer. My Arabic needs work. Muslims pray five times a day at sunrise, midday, afternoon, sunset, and evening. And before prayer, they actually wash their head, their hands, and their feet. And I have to just tell you, this week, it was very moving for me to accompany Imam Rauf in his mosque and actually hear the adhan. That, that's the call to prayer. It's that soulful, haunting melody that's usually chanted or sung. Allahu Akbar! And it goes across out over the minaret. And as one of the Muslim elders sang that, scores of men began pouring into the room. Old men, young men. It was noontime, about 1 p.m. actually, and most of these guys were on their lunch break. So let's just give credit where it is due. If I said to you, guys, new thing here at our at Liquid, tomorrow morning we're having a mid-dawn prayer meeting at 5 a.m. And then we're going to meet again at noon to pray. How many of you would set your alarm to be there? <laughs> prayer to Allah is central to Islam, and it is extremely humbling. Men and women actually bow down. They prostrate themselves. What that means is they don't just bow down. Their head, forehead touches the ground in a sign of humility, saying, God is God and I am not, and I am submitted to his will. Did you know that? Muslim, Islam, actually means submission or surrender. So Muslim is somebody who's saying, I surrender my life, I submit to God. The third pillar is zakat, or alms, to the poor. Once every year, Muslims pay 2-3% to 3 of their savings as alms to needy persons. Fasting is a fourth pillar. Muslims fast for the whole month of Ramadan. That means no eating, drinking, smoking, sexual relations. And the fast, the whole goal is that's supposed to teach discipline to their soul. And it reminds Muslims of the month that the first verses of the Quran were actually given to Muhammad. And finally, the fifth pillar is pilgrimage to Mecca. Once in a lifetime, every able-bodied Muslim is required to journey to Mecca where Muhammad received his first revelation. They actually go to see the Kaaba. That's this big box here in the center. It represents the house of God. And this is this Hajj, this pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia. That is the largest annual assembly of people on earth. Nearly 2 million Muslims journey there every year. Now, here's the reality. Just like Christians, the vast majority of Muslims in the United States are not mosque-attending kinds of Muslims. They're kind of like CEO Christians. Christmas and Easter only. We go on the important days. <laughs> but worldwide, there's this vast spectrum. Did you know this? The vast majority of Muslims are not in the Middle East. They're actually in Asia. Imam Raouf studied in Pakistan and in Cairo, and there's great diversity from poetic Sufis, the whirling dervishes, to conservative Wahhabis, all the way to Islamic fundamentalists like Osama bin Laden and Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And those, of course, are the ones you hear most about on the news. 
And they represent that conflict, that internal the tension that we feel as people who are committed to freedom of religion on one hand, but wary of extremism on the other. The question that we're going to ask is, are there really seeds of hatred and violence in this book? That's a question we're going to tackle and look at. But the point is, early on, guys, in the evolution of these faiths, the cross, the crescent, the star of David, Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived together for hundreds of years and coexisted peacefully. They debated God, they debated faith, and they actually created culture. Muslims are incredible innovators. They created advanced math like algebra. And some of you would say, well, that's a curse. Uh, that's not, you know. <laughs> advanced medicine. Muslims pioneered the concept of contagious disease. That, that, that's where that was first pioneered. And they've actually been in our country since Columbus. And today, more than 2 million Muslims live coast to coast. So the question is, is Islam as American as apple pie? I'll let you decide. We do know that Thomas Jefferson specifically included Islam when urging protection of religious freedom. And today, the estimated more than two million Muslims live coast to coast. In fact, in Dearborn, Michigan, they make up a third of the population. There are four Muslim city mayors in New Jersey alone. Miss USA is a Muslim, so are these NFL players. And as a population, according to one survey, American Muslims have twice the college degrees of the average. They make a higher income than the average. And there is this. 7,000 of U.S. military troops are Muslim, fighting around the world for the American dream. I'm a mayor of Teaneck, New Jersey. I'm in corporate finance. We have a jewelry line. American is apple pot. I want to be a teacher when I grow up. Soccer player. A scientist, I want to be a doctor. So hundreds of millions of peaceful Muslims would say that's the real face of Islam. Ordinary, peace-loving people who want the same things we all do, Sim. We, we all desire education, a job, security. But the question then is, how did this religion become the symbol of what the West fears most? What, what, what about brutality towards women. And most of all, how did we wake up one beautiful day in September to the specter of this? The last two words that passed the lips of the 9-11 hijackers were Allahu Akbar. Why the hostility towards Israel? Why, why do extremists chant death to America? What's the truth? Does Islam breed violence? Is, is there a virus of hatred inside of this book? And the answer is, it all depends on how you interpret it. Let me show you an example. Take this passage, which is pretty clear. It says, if your brother or child or wife worships another god, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. Death by stoning. It seems like the kind of barbaric commandment the Taliban might follow. And indeed, just two months ago, this cell phone video was smuggled out of tribal Pakistan. It actually shows the stoning of a woman by Taliban militants. Her crime, reportedly being seen with another man. The problem is, the brutal passage supporting this kind of horror is not actually from the Quran, but our Bible. That passage I just read is from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 5. You can look for yourself, you're holding the text. And that may not be surprising to some of you. You're like, everybody understands it's easy to cherry pick a verse out of context. 
and amplify it and say, see, here's evidence outright that this is a religion of violence. Now, as a Christian, we have ways of dealing with ancient scriptures like this. We all know the Old Testament is filled with all sorts of bloody accounts of barbaric slaughter, and yet today billions of Christians put them in context and say, these, are, these were biblical war stories that are descriptive, not prescriptive. Yeah? In other words, it's describing what happened, not what you should now do. Yeah? So, so Deuteronomy 17 is not the binding revelation for how we treat unbelievers or sinners today. In fact, when Jesus came in the New Testament, one of his most shocking and offensive teachings was he turned that ancient law of retribution on its head, and he said, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you what, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that was a startling revelation in the ancient world. This was good news, the gospel. When Jesus died as our substitute on this cross, he introduced a brand new law which brought an end to the bloodshed. He said, I'm going to make peace between men and God and then between men and their enemies. And that's the law of love we follow today as, as Christ followers. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, what? Turn to him the other also. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Radical grace. Again, to people who are outside the gospel, this sounds like foolishness. Like he's advocating weakness. But to those of us who have their hope in the power of the cross, this is the wisdom of God. It is the only hope we have in a violent world. Amen? So how do Muslims decide which parts of the Quran to follow? The Quran is actually kind of divided into two parts in many ways. It kind of seems that way. Earlier chapters were revealed to Muhammad at Mecca, and these contain the more peaceful verses. For instance, in uh, Surah 2, verse uh, 256, we read, there's no compulsion in religion. And Muslim apologists would point to that verse and say, see, here's evidence that Islam is a religion of peace. It doesn't use violence to force people into becoming followers of Allah. And here's the deal, guys. The Quran has many passages that advocate tolerance and kindness. Most of them are revelations from Mecca early on when Muhammad was first starting out and he had few followers. This is from AD 614, and it strikes a more conciliatory tone. The second part of the Quran contains revelations Muhammad had at Medina, and this is the later part of his life when Muhammad had actually grown rich and powerful and less tolerant. In Surah 9, verse 5, he instructs, Kill the infidels wherever you find them. Arrest them, besiege them, and lie in ambush everywhere for them. Now, this is the infamous verse of the sword. This is the one that Western critics often cite as evidence that the Islam condones violence against non-believers, specifically against Christians and Jews, people of the other book. Some biographies report that Muhammad beheaded six to 700 enemies on the field of battle. And there is no doubt that his later teachings are more militant in tone. So, so the rub is this, guys. Do you, you see what's happening here? Muslim scholars would say this verse is localized to ancient history. It permitted Muslims to act with aggression towards enemies of Muhammad's time period. But other scholars would say, no, this is a globalized revelation for all time. This is a teaching Muslim terrorists would use today to justify modern jihad against the West. And the tension between those two interpretations is what makes Americans most uneasy. Scholars agree that Muhammad's words turn more militant later in life because at that point in history, his tribe was in a bloody war. He's under siege by his own people. He becomes a warrior, a statesman, and a religious leader all at once. Is it true, though, that those words should then 
supersede anything he said earlier? Not at all. In fact, this is one of the hottest debates inside of Islam today. While a fundamentalist Muslim follows Muhammad's instruction to fight the infidels, moderate scholars argue the infidels he was talking about were specific enemies that have been dead for 1,300 years. And the Quran only calls for jihad against invaders threatening a Muslim home. One of your uh, questioners mentioned this verse about killing infidels. Uh, it's interesting that the verse immediately after it says, if any of the unbelievers asks you for sanctuary, then take them into your houses so that they might hear the word of God and then let them go on their way. But militants conveniently ignore that verse or focus on other more controversial books. This is a book called Minhaj al-Muslim, for example. As a teen in Egypt, Dr. Tawik Hamid got a hold of this sort of literature and eventually joined a terrorist group led by 9-11 planner Ayman al-Zwahiri. Within six to eight months, I became indoctrinated with certain forms of teaching that completely changed me to a very different personality that become ready to kill and die for Allah, to do jihad activity, to dream about dying as a shaheed or a martyr. But he says he came to his senses when he was ordered to bury a police officer alive. He says bestsellers like The Way of the Muslim are often quoted in place of the Quran and contain dangerous ideas. Which means the blood money or the compensation for killing of the disbeliever is half of the blood money of the Muslim man. When you devalue the life of non-Muslims, that is the root cause of the problem. Terrorism is the last step. There is no doubt that the Quran contains the theology of jihad. Jihad literally means struggle. There's an inner jihad or struggle and an external one. And we're going to explore exactly what that means next week because that term is overused and a little bit more nuanced than you probably think. But the point is there is a giant debate raging right now within Islam. As modern followers try to come to terms with fundamentalist interpretations of the text. This, this goes without saying, there are extremists in every religion, yes? Every religion has extremists. In my mind, the question is, will mainstream believers actually speak up and object and say, no, 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 that is not what we believe. A lot of Western people right now are disturbed by the perceived lack of silence, of clear and like forthright condemnation from mainstream Muslims. I mean, you guys know this, as, as followers of Christ, when someone bombs an abortion clinic, we say, that is evil. We condemn that as wrong under any circumstances. When a pedophile priest gets exposed, we say that doesn't define our faith. We denounce that and most people understand that's not the true face of Christianity. The cross is our symbol. God wants peace so much that Jesus absorbed the violence himself. And when wronged, his followers respond with love for their enemies. That's how we coexist. We actually denounce those on the fringe who associate the gospel with hostility and ignorance. So when that, that Florida from pastor, okay, when he threatened to burn the Quran, we say, well, he's from Florida. <laughs> what do you want, right? The hard question is, will Muslims around the world defend their faith from extremists? Or will they allow it to be hijacked by jihad? Or the specter of Sharia law? You've probably heard about that. That's a debate that's happening right now within the Islamic community, especially those in the Middle East. Watch the headlines this week. This is amazing. I clipped this article out of the New York Times International Edition a few weeks ago. It's from Saudi Arabia. 
The headline reads, Hospitals Asked to Maim Man as Punishment. That's the headline. Cairo, a Saudi Arabian judge has asked several hospitals in the country whether they could damage a man's spinal cord as punishment for attacking another man with a cleaver and paralyzing him. We are asking for our legal right under Islamic law, said Khalad Amateri, the brother of the victim. There is no better word than God's word, an eye for an eye. So, so catch this, this guy was paralyzed in a fight more than two years ago, and he asked the judge to impose the same punishment on his attacker under Sharia law. That, you've heard about Sharia probably in the news. It's hyped a lot. It is a form of Islamic justice. And the first hospital in Riyadh, that's the capital of Saudi Arabia, declined. They said, no, no, Hippocratic Oath, we can do no harm. But another said they could probably do it at a specialized facility using a nerve agent. So catch this. In Saudi Arabia, which is probably the most economically modernized Arab country in the Middle East, there is a debate going on right now about the possibility of severing a man's spinal cord in retaliation for his original crime. That's eye for eye justice from the Sharia. That's the law that Jesus said, I'm overturning with my death on the cross. You've heard it said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, spinal cord for spinal cord, but I tell you, grace is God's greatest weapon. Forgiveness without limits is the only way to end extremism in any faith tradition. Folks, in a very real way, Jesus waged a jihad of his own on the human heart. See, there's a violence in every one of our hearts that transcends sex or denominations. And Jesus drew it out and he took it on himself. And he sacrificed his life so we'd be saved and could actually coexist with God and with each other. That's the truth of the cross. And that's how we're supposed to be praying for our friends under the crescent. Listen, there are thousands and thousands of kind and generous and peaceful Muslim men and women living around the world and in our neighborhoods. So don't be ignorant. Men like my friend Imam Raouf who said, you know what, terrorism and suicide bombing, Tim, are not compatible with the principles of Islam. You're going to hear about this next week. And yet, in an article like this, August 2010, New York Times, that highlights the struggle in the Muslim world right now to, on the one hand, modernize their culture, and on the other, reform many of these extremist interpretations of Quranic tradition. So our prayers actually go with them. I'm going to be sharing um, another lunch with Imam Raouf uh, this month, and I welcome your questions, because I have barely scratched the surface today. You probably feel like you got fire-hosed a little bit. Uh, but I'm going to stop here because you have plenty to discuss in your life groups this week. Next week, we are going to look at the genesis of jihad. Where did this all begin? Because although this conflict, you know, for you and I, this is, this is just like, this is just kind of coming onto our shores and, and you think this whole conflict between Islamic fundamentalists and the West seems like a modern phenomenon. But you know what? It actually dates back to the beginning, the very, very beginning, over 3,000 years ago. And it has ancient roots in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, which we are going to look at and connect the dots with today's headlines. So watch the paper. My question is, what questions do you have about Islam? I want to invite you to actually take a minute here at the end of our service to write it down on your connection card. We put that in your bulletin. Before you leave today, just in the response there, write down any questions you have. Leave it on your seat. I'm going to read every one. And we're going to collect those cards at the end of the service, and I'm going to share actually some of these questions with Imam Raouf over lunch, and I'll try to address some of them as time allows. Guys, the cross is the center of our faith as Christians, and it is the truth of God unto salvation. Amen? We had over 50 people baptized this morning. They said, I'm staking my life that Jesus took my punishment. 
We had people who have committed adultery, people who were on the other end, people who've been abused, people who've made a mess of their life, and they say, I got nothing to offer God. He's way up there. And he came down to me. That's what we believe it on. And what our job is now as believers and followers of the cross is to pray for those who follow the crescent. So would you reach out and get to know your Muslim neighbors, coworkers, the families at your school? Invite them to lunch for heaven's sakes. That's what I did with Imam Rauf. Start a relationship. That's what our faith is all about. It's a grace-based relationship that actually says the most powerful thing is to extend radical love even to those with whom I disagree. Better yet, would you invite them next week? <laughs> That's why I've given you these invite cards. Take a bunch of these, give them out at work. This is an issue everybody has an opinion on. I noticed on Facebook. And next week, we're going to go right back to the original sources, not just ABC. I am very, very excited about this. Um, we're also going to be having an interview with an evangelist from Iran who's actually flying into the States. We're going to have an interview with him, and he's going to tell us the news, the big news uh, that is not being reported on the mainstream channels. That, in fact, the biggest revolution happening right now in the Middle East is a spiritual awakening among 20 and 30-something Muslims in hardline countries like Iran. It's incredible. As the gospel of grace softens the ground, the power of the cross, of forgiveness, of freedom, reconciliation with God and each other, it just takes root in hardened hearts. So don't miss out and don't forget to bring a friend. That's love, all right? So let's pray together. God, I thank you, um, Lord. There's a lot of gaps, Father. We need your spirit now to fill in. Father, these are some facts, and um, sometimes just bald faith facts can be dangerous because we use them as weapons. So we're looking for a spirit of humility and of grace. So right now, I pray that you'll come upon your people right now. Us as a church, Father, there are very few people in this world who are talking to each other. We're mainly talking at each other. I pray that you're going to open up a new dialogue. Do it by the power of your Holy Spirit and do it to bring glory and honor to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said together, Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.